Welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Tonight, we will ask a question so fundamental that it rarely, if ever, occurs to us. Just what is money? On tonight's show, we'll learn about the circulation and the creation of money, who gets to create it, and how it moves in our society. And just what is a bank? What do most of, why do most of us entrust our funds, our money to them? Also, is there a difference between credit and money? And who made the rules about debt and repayment? All that tonight on Full Circle. I'm your host, Darlene Pagano. Stay with us. Welcome again to Full Circle. Not only is tonight, Friday the 13th, and the last weekend to work on your 2017 tax return, but it also has a happy significance, as this is the anniversary, the birthday of KPFA. The station went on the air in 1949, fully 69 years ago. What is KPFA hoping to receive for its birthday? Well, a successful membership drive. The goal of this birthday drive is to sign up 200 allies and new members. If they step up today, the station can give a gift back. 200 allies means we can make the summer pledge drive one day shorter. Allies are folks who make a pledge of $10 or more a month on a recurring basis. Members are those who make a one-time pledge of $25 or more. We have personal gifts as well for you for pledging. Becoming an ally means we will cover you in KPFA from head to toe, a KPFA cap and the new red and black logo socks. Make a pledge today at 1-800-439-5732 or online at kpfa.org. Of course, if you're already a member, and I hope you are, then a birthday donation is always a delight. 69 years of lifting the independent and progressive voices of the Bay Area and from around the world. Let's celebrate that and determine to stay vigilant into the future. Make a pledge. 1-800-439-5732 or online at kpfa.org. Here at Full Circle, we always try to bring you voices not easily found on most airwaves. Tonight is no different. For this tax deadline weekend, let's turn now from the need to finance KPFA and find out more about the very nature of money as it comes into our own hands. And all the gold in California is in a bank in the middle of Beverly Hills. It's somebody else's name. So if you're dreaming about California, 
heard a small piece from a song titled All the Gold in California by the Gatlin Brothers and they were a major country music group from the 1980s singing a lament that is still, if not more, applicable today. My guests tonight are Paul Pride from Our Money and Debbie Notkin from Friends of the Public Bank of Oakland. Paul is a semi-retired consultant specializing in public policy and finance. Prior to moving to the Bay Area from Washington, D.C. four years ago, he spent more than 40 years working with foundations, policy organizations, and federal agencies on the banking and credit issues facing low-income communities, especially people of color. Debbie has been living in Oakland since 1984. She's a member of Strike Debt Bay Area and the Friends of the Public Bank of Oakland. So welcome, Paul and Debbie. And thanks for the work you both do to uh, bring a progressive understanding of money through popular education for all of us who are outside of the workings of financial systems. Thanks, Darlene. It's great to be here. So here is my question of the night, and it's so basic, it even sounds silly to ask it out loud. What is money? Well, the best way to uh, respond to that, I think, uh, to that might be to say what money is not. It's not the bills and coins we carry around in our pocket for the most part. Um, most of it takes the form of bank deposits, 97% in the, uh, England and 90% of the money here in the United States is in the form of bank deposits. Now, contrary to what textbooks say, banks create uh, these deposits when they make loans. In other words, banks don't take money from savers and let it lend that money to borrowers. What they do is actually create money, and when they create money, it takes the form of bank deposits. This wasn't widely known until the Bank of England back in 2014 spilled the beans. Uh, so right now, what we have is an emerging understanding of how money really works as an instrument um, that is created by banks when they make loans. Well, I can't really get that explanation totally yet. What does that look like on the level of how I live my life? Well, let's say your car craps out and you need a car and you decide that your best bet is to get a new car. So you go to the bank and ask for a loan, let's say $25,000, because that's what a new car costs these days. The bank isn't going to hand you $25,000 in bills. You're not going to take a big fat chunk of bills from the bank to the car dealership. Instead, the bank, the person at the bank is going to click a couple of times on the computer and say, okay, now you have $25,000 and you're going to, I do. Yeah, you have $25,000. And the car dealership will look at what the bank did on the computer and say, look, you have $25,000. Now you can, you can have a car. You can drive a car off the lot. But of course, nobody gave you that $25,000. They loaned it to you. So you're going to have to pay it back, paying principal and interest every month. So what are the implications of this? If banks create money seemingly out of thin air, 
What does that mean in everyday terms? Well, right now there's about $13 trillion in bank debts, uh, uh, assets. And all of this takes the form of loans that banks have made to businesses and households. What it means is that almost all the money we have in the economy takes the form of debt. So look at it this way. If all the money is debt, then if we repay all that debt, there'll be no more money. Now, that seems perverse, but that's the way it would work. Uh, contrary to what we're taught, that we should always repay every debt we have and we should save more and uh, uh, have less debt. That works at the level of the individual, but for the economy as a whole, it would be a disaster. So if we have less debt, we have less money, which means the economy could collapse. Um, it also means that banks get paid a lot of money for doing very little. I mean, how much effort and energy does it take to make a few clicks on a computer uh, keyboard? Now, I'm not talking about the fact that banks have to incur costs in complying with federal regulations and doing uh, other things that banking involves. I'm just talking about, I'm talking about the simple act of creating money. You can create as much money, or a bank can create as much money as it wants with a f few clicks on a computer keyboard. Um, and as I said, that's and they they get paid to get to collect interest on the debt they create, even though it doesn't take a lot of energy to create that debt. So, what problems uh, does our current way of creating money cause? Well, one problem is instability. Um, historically, uh, when things are good. Banks lend a lot of money. They keep lending and lending, which means, of course, that the rest of us go into more and more and more debt. And eventually, as our debts pile up, we find we can't repay them. And then uh, people stop paying their debts. Bankruptcies occur. Unemployment rises. The economy goes into free fall. And then banks tend to make matters worse by saying, oh, hell, and they stop lending. So... What you have is the booms and busts that we've uh, considered a natural part of the economy, in part because banks lend too much when times are good, and when times are bad, they lend too little. And that creates an unstable economy. This has been known for many years. Back during the, right after the Great Depression, uh, FDR, as economists, told him the exact same thing. <sighs> Okay. Another <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just marveling over here about this. Go right ahead. So another problem that the ways we create money causes is economic inequality. And first of all, as Paul said earlier, the banks themselves are making a lot of money, and that money is generally going to rich people because most people who own stocks and shares in banks are rich. But secondly, when banks make loans, they're more inclined to lend to people who have collateral. If you have two houses, the bank is going to lend you money to buy a third house or a fifth house. But if you don't have a house, the bank is going to look at you and say, eh, we're not so sure you would pay back this loan for your first house. So the first borrowers in the queue are rich. And they don't borrow to consume. They don't borrow things they need. They don't borrow to buy things they need. They borrow to purchase assets, like maybe shares in banks. And every time they do that, it increases the price 
of the assets they buy. So the queue kind of uh, trends down from the richest people to the pretty rich people to the people who have enough. And the last people in the queue are poor people. And they have to borrow to purchase anything of value at the inflated prices that have been inflated by lending first to the rich. And um, so more money goes to the rich, less money goes to the poor. And meanwhile, the 99%, if you want to use the Occupy terminology, which I like, the 99% are in debt peonage or something that is even sometimes called debt slavery. I learned very recently that um, at the time of the Civil War, the British banks were cheering on the union. And one of the things they were saying is, wait, you know, if you control people by debt, you don't have to pay their food and lodging costs. We think debt slavery is much better for rich people than chattel slavery. That's something I just recently learned. But banks are operated and managed for the benefit of their managers and their rich shareholders. And loans are structured not for the benefit of borrowers, but to enrich the people who own and run the banks. So when that bank lends you that $25,000 to buy a car, they are not thinking that it will be good for you to be able to buy a car. They're thinking about what they will get out of loaning you that $25,000. Well, another problem that we see is the racial economic disparities that exist in America right now. Uh, we've known for years that's been well documented that black Americans haven't been able to get mortgages. Their communities have been redlined for years now. And that continues to be the case. Um, black Americans are more dependent on payday lenders and other forms of high-cost debt. Um, now, <clears throat> the other problem is that black banks have declined in number dramatically over the years. And so, in essence, the instruments that will be responsible for creating money for use by black Americans, their businesses, and their consumers are marginalized, have been marginalized. As a matter of fact, the total assets of black banks would be a roundoff error for Bank of America. Let me put it another way. Uh, black Americans have around $700 billion in debt. If they didn't have to pay interest on money created by banks, they'd probably have 40 to $50 billion a year in money to spend and save. Spending and saving. Can you just pop in a little bit here about why do we have these bills and coins if, if that's not really money anymore? Well... It is money, but it's inconvenient to use. You know, technology has shifted over the years. It, at one time, all money was, was coins, you know, little gold coins we carried around. But they're burdensome to carry, uh, unwielded. So that was replaced by paper uh, notes that banks issued. And the technology changed again, and we started using um, uh, checks. And it's changed again, and now we use online banking. So what's happened is that the forms of money have changed, but the basics have not. It's still created by banks in the form of loans. Whether the deposits are in the form of a coin or a check or a note from a bank, it still represents a debt to a bank. 
And the other thing I would say here quickly is that you and I, we use bills and coins, but the really rich people, they don't have, they don't need to have money in their, in their wallets. They have everything right where they need it, right? They, everything is in their computers, it's in their phones, it's in their watches. There's so much money that we can't see and touch. I'm going to pause right here. I know there are a few more uh, questions uh, brewing for me, especially about that legal tender business and is money just an agreement we have with each other? But we'll get to that in uh, in the uh, next next segment or so. I am going to pause here for a minute because um, I need to. Uh, there, there's a lot for us non-owners of banks to observe, absorb. So uh, we're going to have some music. Uh, and I encourage you to call in with your pledge to KPFA or, or online at kpfa.org. And the number is 1-800-439-5732. And we'll talk, uh, when we come back, we'll talk briefly about KPFA and our financial model.
Yeah, we are working our way backwards in popular music history tonight. And that was For the Love of Money by the OJs. And that's from 1973. Um, as you know, today is the 69th anniversary of KPFA here in Berkeley. And what do we want for this birthday, we at KPFA? Well, we want allies and new members. Become a member or ally today at 1-800-439-5732 or online at kpfa.org. Make sure KPFA moves into the future with you. Donate as a birthday wish to see KPFA become 79 or 99 years old. We all need KPFA as a vigilant defender of citizens' right to free speech and inquiry as she has been doing since 1949. If we reach our goal of 200 allies and new members today, everyone gets the gift of a summer pledge drive that will be one day shorter than planned. One KPFA archive clip I heard this morning mentioned that the very first fund drive had a goal of $6,500, and the premium was an FM radio to help you be able to listen to KPFA's signal. Things have changed. We now need to raise at least 80 times that amount per fund drive, and that is where we need you and your financial commitment to free speech radio. Become a member today at 1-800-5732, that's 1-800-439-5732, or online at kpfa.org. Thank you to all who have called and clicked. We appreciate your gift. Now, back to the bigger picture of money and finance, banking and debt. With my guests, Paul Pride from Our Money and Debbie Notkin from Friends of the Oakland Public Bank. So, Paul and Debbie, I'm going to try it again. You gave a number of consequences that this bank-centered money supply creates. Let me dare to ask, are there even more consequences? Well, one is that you have um, what you might call the financialization of the economy. Now, if you're a bank, as Debbie pointed out, you're going, to re- you're going to lend to people who have collateral, mainly rich people. They're your favorite borrowers because they have a, a lot of collateral, stocks, bonds, real estate, and they also have the capacity to borrow a lot because they have a lot of income. <clears throat> but how many yachts and houses and um, other luxury goods can you buy? You can't. So what are you going to do with the money you borrow from the bank? You're going to invest in real estate. You're going to buy stocks and bonds. You're going to engage in speculation. And so that's one of the other consequences. Let me give you an example. Uh, Immediately after the 2008 financial crisis, the Blackstone Group, a large money fund, bought 29,000 houses which had been foreclosed on. They then took them away from the people who had lived in them, no longer lived there. Blackstone turned them into rentals. So suddenly there are 29 fewer, 29,000 fewer houses you can buy and 29,000 more houses that make rental money for rich people. No new houses. Housing was built. Few, if any, jobs or businesses were created. But Blackstone makes money from rentals. If eventually they can resell them to people who want to live in them again, if they want to, it's another way for the rich to get richer and the rest of us to have less. 
one of the developments that's been reported by financial economists and the financial press is something called shadow banking. These are unregulated financial institutions which have grown to enormous size over the last decade or so. They have, according to one report I read, about $90 trillion in assets. Now, compared to that to the U.S. banking system with only $13 billion in, a trillion in assets. Uh, now, how... How do they operate and how do they create more and more debt? Well, here's one way. Let's say you have a bunch of rich investors. They uh, borrowed $200 million from a bank because they've got a lot of collateral. Then they buy $200 million worth of loans from an auto loan company. Then they package those loans in securities and sell them. Then they get the $200 million in cash from the sale of those securities. They do it again and again and again. Suddenly, $200 million in money created by banks is $1 to $2 billion in additional debt out there. And that's how the financialization of the economy works. Now, some of this activity arguably makes lending safer, more profitable, can actually increase uh, the number of people who can get loans. But on the other hand, it doesn't create any jobs, doesn't create any businesses, doesn't add to employment or wages. So... That is one of the other consequences that we need to be concerned about, that the control of the financial industry over not only our economy, but as a related matter, over our politics. You had said that um, they, um, they can package all those loans they bought on the cheap with borrowed money. Um, where do those securities go and how safe are they? Well... If you have a pension fund, you probably own some because where they go is to big institutional invest, uh, investors like insurance companies and in uh, pension funds, which need uh, assets like these, um, what are called asset-backed securities, to fund their pension obligations. Um, they also go um, back to certain banks who also keep them on the books. Um, once again... Money is easy to create if you want to. It's not inherently scarce and it's not inherently costly. So there are plenty of places uh, for people who want to package loans into securities to place them. So how much value, now that's my word, how much value has this um, 200, uh, was it million, billion, or trillion? How much uh, has that debt created? How much has it added to the good of the world? Well, in terms of what's called the real economy, very little. Um, when you have more debt, uh, especially that debt that, that goes for speculation, you're not really producing new goods, new services that ordinary people can use. You're therefore not uh, generating new businesses. You're not employing new people. You're not um, generating wage increases. Um, so this um, financialization, this rise of the financial elite and the powerful uh, rise of financial institutions has not produced very much value, almost none, for the ordinary citizen. It's great for um, the financial elite. For example, going back to um, the illustration I provided, if you're 
making the, taking these loans, packaging them into securities and selling securities, you get a fee each time you do that. That's a good way to make a living. Uh, you don't have to do much after that to enjoy a very happy, uh, financially uh, uh, secure life. And what's the name of that profession? It's called, well, that is called securitization. Um, it was at the root, as a matter of fact, of some of the biggest problems in 2008 when people were taking loans that should not have been made. Uh, and package them into securities and selling them to a variety of people. When people couldn't pay those loans, the securities defaulted and everybody lost money, calling, uh, resulting in the bailout of the financial institutions of America. I'm going to just ask you to just uh, keep on going. Um, and uh, I'm, I am following along a little bit better now because when you started mentioning 2008, uh, KPFA had such great coverage over the years that uh, I do feel like we all got a bit of an bit of an education on that one. Okay. You know, one of the points I'd like to make is that essentially, when money in this economy under our current system is essentially a swap of IOUs, when you put money into a bank, that's not your money anymore. That money doesn't belong to you. What the bank says is, I will promise to pay you that amount upon demand or at some specific point in the future. So they, you don't get to ask them, by the way, what they're going to do with your money. On the other hand, when you borrow from them, they're going to ask you what you're going to do with the, the, the money you borrowed from them, although they, you don't get to ask them what, you're going to, what they're going to do with the money they borrow from you. So it's a little bit of a lack of reciprocity, I might say. Um, so what we have here in, in real terms, in legal terms, is a swap of IOUs. It's a hell of a way to run a, an, an economy. So, so Paul, um, to pop in in Darlene's role and ask a question, do I own the money in my bank account? No, you don't. That money belongs to the bank. All you get is an IU from the bank. Now, what makes it worth a lot is that it's guaranteed by the government. So you have an IU guaranteed by the government, by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, that says, Debbie, if you put your money into that bank, you're going to get it back. We guarantee it. So the bank gets to issue IOUs all over the place uh, and uh, have those IOUs accepted as money, mainly because the government says so that it will back it up. The government, the taxpayers, are the ones who are really standing behind the IOUs that banks issue. But not our IOUs. Not our IOUs, no. Um, I have, um, let me ask that question because you were saying that the government backs things up. Um, my question was, if, if we just sort of are all in agreement that money exists or I have this much money in my bank and you have that much money or you give me this uh, check written uh, for this, that and the other. What if I say, you know, this is all just an agreement we make. I'm not going to keep up with that agreement. I don't want to take I don't I, I want something else in, in repayment. <laughs> OK, here's the problem. Uh, if you go to the um, U.S. Treasury and say, um, here's um, a dollar bill or a hundred dollar bill. I want real money. They'll look at you like you're crazy, first of all, and they'll give you a check for a hundred dollars or another hundred dollar bill. That's it. 
Money in this economy is called fiat money. It's money because the government says it is. There's no gold behind it. There's no commodities behind it. And it has value for a couple of reasons. One is because the government says you have to use it to pay taxes. And people have to accept it in payment of debts. So that creates the demand for money. I mean, nobody wants to go to jail for tax avoidance. So you have to have dollars. And people have debts and they, have, they want to settle them in some way. So they have to have dollars. So you may uh, not like it. Uh, and it has certain deficiencies. But the fact of the matter is that the demand for dollars is there because the government says you have to use them for certain purposes. Because the government says, and that's the fiat. That's the fiat. Okay. All right. Deep breath. Uh, the numbers that we have just run through and the information to me that our government, uh, our economic system runs largely on debt that's incurred and and keeps moving because of debts being paid off. Uh, lets me know that some reading on economics in the banking industry is in my near future. We're going to take another music break, and we're going to go even further back in music history. Here is a song from 1949, a song as old as KPFA, but a message that's still current today. I've traveled around this country From shore to shame and shore Thank you. 
Welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 FM KPFA. And that was Banks of Marble, sung by Ewan McClellan, uh, a new singer to me who's, I am just captivated by his music. As always, you can go to our webpage to visit the archives of all of our shows, and this one will be up there as well. And you could check there for the links we provide to the materials that we mention and the music that we play from each night's show. And that website is kpfaapprentice.org. Now, that is also the website where you can download an application for the next apprenticeship training program. And this is another notable KPFA activity that I hope you all will fund. The apprenticeship program is a tuition-free 18-month course to give traditionally underrepresented communities a pathway into media access. Please go to kpfaapprentice.org and there click on the program page and read up about the apprenticeship program and I hope you will consider applying. The deadline for those applications has been extended, so please follow your interests and visit the webpage, kpfaapprentice.org. So turning back to our guests, Paul Pride and Debbie Notkin. Folks, I'm certainly hoping that you are going to say that there are other ways to create money, uh, create value, and there might be some solutions that we would all want to be working toward. Yeah. You know, although banks create most of the money that we use, in fact, the government itself can create money. And this has a long history. Government created money. Not in the form of debt that people had to repay, but in the form of spending. Uh, for example, back in medieval England, there was something called a tally stick, which um, represented... Um, a government's payment of taxes. When um, you pay taxes to the king, he would give you this uh, wooden stick, which meant you'd pay your taxes. Well, those circulated as money, but nobody was in debt because money was circulating. Uh, during the Civil War, uh, Abraham Lincoln reportedly went to his New York bankers and asked them to lend him money to finance the war. And they said, fine, uh, it'll be 24% interest. And he said, eh, I don't think so. And he went out and issued about $350 million in greenbacks. Once again, money in circulation, nobody in debt. Um, so we have a history of having the government spend money into circulation rather than having banks created through lending. And in my judgment, that's the way that we should create much more of the money that's now circulating in our economy. Um, this a way we do it right now is because the government has essentially ceded money creation to the banks. Um, the fact of the matter is that if the government wanted to, it could essentially prohibit banks from creating money and say that a democratically controlled institution Something like our own Federal Reserve is going to create all the money we need, and the banks are only going to be able to do lending with existing money. They can't lend money into existence. And that's being seriously considered by a number of economies in Europe, not here, but in Europe. As a matter of fact, in Switzerland, there's a referendum on that very topic that's, uh, uh, that's supposed to occur this year, I, be I believe. 
And in the UK, there's a serious discussion being uh, waged by, uh, being headed by a group called Positive Money about the same idea, having government create our money, not private banks. Because after all, uh, banks create money in their own interest. They have no responsibility in their own judgment to make sure that the needs of society are taken care of. And that's a big problem with our current monetary system, in my judgment. So here's a couple of examples that are closer to home than those uh, medieval tally sticks. Even those those medieval tally sticks are really cool. Um, in 2009, after the uh, Great Recession was in full-fledged, California government couldn't pay... Uh, a lot of its bills and so it paid the bills in IOUs when we have more money we'll pay your salary when we have more money we'll pay what we owe you and this obviously this wasn't a good thing for the people who needed the money but what's interesting about it is those IOUs started circulating like money I have an IOU from the state of California for $750. I just bought something from you that would cost me $750, and I can't pay you because California didn't pay me, but I can give you my IOU. And then you have it, and I don't, and when California is solvent again, you get it. So that wasn't a really ideal or optimistic way for governments to create money, but it was still an example of how a government could not go into further debt and still keep things flowing in the economy. And in Italy and Greece now, two of the countries that are hurting the most in Europe and have the worst debt and the worst economic burdens, they're seriously considering issuing their own forms of tax credit certificates. And again, these would be debt-free money. These would be money you could use within Italy and Greece to get what you need, to buy bread, to pay your rent, the things that people need to do with money. Um, KPFA is sponsoring Yanis Varoufakis next month. And I'm so excited about going to hear him because I think this is one of the things he's going to talk about. He was the progressive head of the Greek parliament and uh, Business Insider called him the most interesting man in the world, which I think is just a, an amazing thing. Um, but, you know, Paul, how come we don't talk about money and money policy and, and what money is in this country? How come they talk about it in Europe, but we don't talk about it here? You know, it's interesting. I, some time ago, started looking at political platforms going back uh, maybe 100 or more years. And up until the early 20th century, discussions about money, who should create it, the role of banks was at the center of public discourse. I mean, everybody was fighting about this. As a matter of fact, um, there is some evidence that the book, The Wizard of Oz, is a monetary allegory. Um, money was at the center of everybody's concern. But when the Federal Reserve was uh, created in 1913 and subsequent to that, we've sort of taken money uh, off the table in terms of our discussion. Uh, we take the current system as though it's sort of uh, uh, a fact of life which is immutable and inevitable. But nothing can be further from the truth. I think the fact that things have gone well in the United States for a number of years up until now 
although if you look at it, the evidence suggests that things have been going poorly for a lot of people for at least a, uh, 20 years or more. I think because of the relative prosperity of most Americans over the years, we've taken uh, money out of our discussion uh, because of our relative prosperity. Well, things aren't going well right now. We need to return the discussion of money to the center of public discourse. I did have a question that came up, Deb. You were talking about uh, a state that uh, could issue its own IOUs. Didn't we in California have a budget crisis period where I remember the teachers, they were paid in vouchers. Yes, that's a, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Was ex- What you're remembering is exactly what I was describing. And as I said, you don't want it to happen because the state is out of money. You want it to happen in a, in a different way. But Paul and I both believe it can happen in a different and much more positive way than teachers being paid in vouchers. And repeat Giannis's uh, full name for me. Giannis Varoufakis. And I would... Uh, uh, urge listeners to go to kpfa.org and look at our events calendar and uh, you will see all the details on that event and how to get tickets. Yeah, I might add that um, uh, when Giannis Varoufakis was the finance minister for Greece, he was the person who introduced the idea of this parallel currency for the Greek economy in response to the fact that the European Central Bank, the IMF, um, and the European Commission were essentially strangling the Greek economy, uh, depriving it of euros. And so his reasoning was, if I can't use euros, I'll create my own sort of parallel or complementary currency, which will circulate, create jobs, and help bring Greece out of the economic doldrums. So it would be interesting to hear his take on this sort of idea. It, it really will be interesting. And it's okay with me if all of you go buy tickets now because I already have mine. Right. Um, but, Paul, you know, it's so interesting that you're talking about 100 years ago as as the turning point in when we talked about money because another solution that I want to talk about or another approach to changing how we think about and use and create money is public banking, which is very close to my heart. And right now, the United States has one existing public bank, and that public bank is in North Dakota, and it was created in 1919, in exactly the period that Paul is talking about. It's been going for a 100 years, and not at all coincidentally, North Dakota got through the 2008 Great Recession better than any other state in the country. And so what the basic idea of a public bank is that the city's money, Oakland's money, Berkeley's money, Richmond's money, North Dakota's money, instead of going to one of the big felony Wall Street banks, goes into a, and they, they're, Darlene's grinning at me, they're convicted felons, every one of or admitted felons, every one of them has said, yes, those things we did are felonies, but you're not going to make us stop doing anything, are you? Because you need us. Uh, but instead of going to those banks, the money would go into, or in the North Dakota's case, does go into a public bank 
whose only goal is to use that money for the good of the community. Nobody's trying to get rich on a public bank. People have jobs there. They have salaries. But it isn't this constant funneling of more and more and more money to the top. So here's an example that may be close to the hearts of many of our listeners and is certainly close to mine, which is North Dakota has bought back all student debt for people who live in North Dakota, regardless of where they went to school, and all student debt for people who, all student debt for people who uh, go to school in North Dakota, regardless of where they live. And you can you can bring your student debt to the Bank of North Dakota. They'll refinance it at four percent. They'll buy it from your lender, which is probably the U.S. government. They'll refinance it at four percent. So suddenly. Your student debt costs go down. You can pay off your student loans sooner. Um, and this kind of thing is just only one thing that a public bank can do. Yeah, interesting you should point, out, point that out, Debbie. One of the things that has fascinated me is uh, that in America, the maximum term for the typical mortgage is 30 years. And I did some research a year or so ago and said, well, why is that? I mean, a house lasts for more than... 30 years. Houses last for hundreds of years in some cases. People live a lot longer than the 60 years they did when this uh, trend or or this um, standard was adopted. Um, In Japan at one time, there were mortgages of 100 years. Um, Now, if you lengthen the term of a mortgage, um, you can reduce the monthly payment so that people who cannot afford a house can now afford it. The argument against that typically is, oh, but you're paying all that additional interest over the term of the mortgage because if it goes from 30 years to 40 or 50 years, you have that additional interest cost. The interesting thing is that the average duration of a mortgage, how long it's actually outstanding, is less than 10 years. Nobody pays off a mortgage anymore. They move or they refinance. So those interest costs are not incurred. So a public bank could start offering new products that are tailored to the needs of a customer, of a borrower, rather to some standard that's really suited only for the banks that originate the loans. And the other, another thing public banks can do is because the bank itself makes money. There's more money for infrastructure. There's more money for parks. There's more money for arts organizations. There's more money for all the things that our city council people really do wish they could do. But they really are constrained by this artificial definition of what money is. And with when we get a robust net, network of public banks going around the country and around the state, then I think it, it will just how we think about what governments and cities can do with their money is just going to change in some really exciting ways. Now, I would like to caution people who think that the alternative to doing this is to regulate the existing banks and to uh, use regulation to uh, limit the extent to which they can make loans. What I've learned to my great dismay, and I think a lot of economists who study the issue would agree, is that there is no effective way of limiting the ability of banks to make loans. Some some people think it's the Federal Reserve. Well, what happens is that the Federal Reserve as a lend of last resort to the banking system has no choice to provide reserves to the banks if they need them. Let's look at it this way. 
let's assume all the big banks decide they want to make a trillion dollars worth of loans. And all of a sudden, they run out of the reserves, the money they need to back the loans that they create, all the deposits created by those loans. What's the Federal Reserve going to say? No, we're not going to give it. We're going to let. The, uh, we're not going to lend you the money. Let the banking system freeze up. No, they have to provide the reserves if the banks say so. So essentially, the Federal Reserve doesn't control the banks. The banks control the Federal Reserve. There's really no effective way of limiting their ability to create money. You can't stop them from loaning with money they don't actually have. That's right. Okay, I think I'm a little speechless right now. <laughs> Um, I'm going to uh, let everybody know that it's getting time to wrap up this show. And you've been listening to my guests tonight, Paul Pride and Debbie Notkin. I want to thank you both for this evening's show. And this is a particularly appropriate date to talk about finance. It's IRS tax time. It's KPFA uh, fundraising time. And... It's just crunch time for a lot of people. So we archive all of our broadcasts and uh, with links to, as I said, the show information at our website. That's KPFA Apprentice. That's all one word. KPFAapprentice.org. And uh, again, please take a look at the material about the apprenticeship program. We're open right now for applications. We are looking for our next cohort, which will be group 44. That's 44 groups of, uh, of students who become producers and engineers that KPFA has taken through the entire process here, and it has been tuition-free. So please think of that when it's time to make a pledge as well. Deb, you have an announcement about an upcoming event I wanted to give you time to to do. Thanks, Darlene. Um, I've been introducing myself tonight as part of the Friends of the Public Bank of Oakland, which I am, but I'm also part of Strike Debt Bay Area. And as Strike Debt Bay Area, um, on Sunday, April 29th and Sunday, May 6th, we're hosting a two-part workshop on wealth and income inequality at the Omni Commons in Oakland. The first part is going to be called How Corporations Move Money from the Many to the Few, and the second part is how we can build a more just economy for all. The event is free. The details are on our website at strike-debt-bay-area.tumblr.com. And we hope you'll come. We think it's going to be a really good two-day event. And we'll try putting that uh, event up along with our links at the KPFA Apprentice uh, website. That is the Full Circle Show website. Okay, folks, if I was giving you one free minute to make any last comments, what do you want to say? I have one because it seems to have dropped off our notes, which is the writer Ursula Le Guin, beloved by so many of us who died earlier this year, said something that is so germane to the points that Paul is making and that I am underscoring. And in her 2014 and her National Book Award speech, she said, we treat capitalism as if it was inevitable, as if it was something that could never change, and it's always been that way. We used to think the same thing about the divine right of kings. 
I think we're all going to miss Miss Le Guin. Paul? Well, I would just say, if you can, get tickets to listen to Giannis <laughs> Varoufakis. I just finished reading his uh, most recent book, and I found it fascinating and compelling. He's an interesting, interesting person and a real expert on how money works in the global economy. Right. Go to kpfa.org and look on the KPFA events page about upcoming speakers. And I'm quite sure that all of the local independent bookstores that you rely on will have tickets as well. So we have come to the end of our show. So tune in next week to Full Circle for an all-music program. <clears throat> Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. I've been your host this evening, Darlene Pagano. Thanks to Sharon on the board for the very first time and our tech assists, all members of Group 43. Thank you for joining us tonight on Full Circle. Stay tuned. La Onda Bejita is next.